welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic, Tim. Very excited about this interview with a old friend. We can say old friend at this uh, time because we have been speaking with him for over a year now. A wonderful human being. Uh, before we get to that, I think the question on everyone's minds right now is, how are you? How's Tim Poliri? <laughs> well, geez, I'm glad we're clearing this up. I am doing well, Lance. Thanks a lot for asking me. <laughs> Nothing breaking over here. And uh, yeah. All right. Well, I'll keep asking. <laughs> yeah, you're right. We uh, we speak with an old friend. His name is Eric Carter Landine, and we met him in person recently at CrimeCon 2022 in Las Vegas. It was a glorious event and just great to meet him in person. And this is now the second time we're having him on the Crawl Space Airwaves. And he, of course, does a fantastic show called True Consequences. And I implore you to subscribe. Follow the links in the show notes and make sure to scroll back and check out the first episode that we did with him because we go deep into the case of his brother, Jacob Landine, who was murdered. And the story is heartbreaking. And we speak a little bit about it here in this episode. Eric is ready to finally publicly sort of talk about the case again and really put some pressure on the authorities. Exactly. His brother was murdered in 1986 and the killer was never brought to justice. So this is Eric's mission in life. But along the way, he's gathering other stories and he's doing, like you said, his fantastic podcast, True Consequences, and covering a number of cases. I love the fact that he'll even cover Billy the Kid. So Eric was born and raised in New Mexico and Billy the Kid has a lot of lore down in New Mexico. And I just love that uh, he doesn't stick strictly to these like heavy missing person or cold cases and can deviate from time to time. And uh, it just really is an example of his personality. When you listen to the episode that we did with him, the first one where he talks about Jacob, it's really serious. Uh, you'll People will uh, have tears at the end of that episode. It was one of the more emotional ones that we've ever done. But in the same conversation, you can be laughing with him. Like he's a, such a well-rounded individual um, and really just a, a wonderful guest to have on and a wonderful friend in the industry. Well, it's a great endorsement, Lance, and I agree wholly with all of it. So make sure to check out Eric's show and the cases that he covers and his brother's case at trueconsequences.com. And there are some links in the show notes that you can follow to follow him on social media as well. And Lance, we're hitting the road this summer with True Crime Obsessed and Maggie Freeling. We got six tour dates. Yes, indeed. It's going to be a blast to hit the road with those folks at True Crime Obsessed. We have two legs. We have one the first week in August and another one the second week in August. I'll hit the first one if you want to tell people about the second one, Tim. We start this mini tour in Orlando, Florida on Wednesday, August 3rd. Then we are off to West Palm Beach on Thursday, August 4th. And on Saturday, August 6th, we're in Atlanta, Georgia. And then we're going to St. Paul, Minnesota on Friday, August 19th. Then Dallas, Texas on Saturday, August 20th. And Houston, Texas on Sunday, August 21st. I can't wait for these tour dates. You can get tickets and more information at truecrimeobsessed.com. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot for listening. Make sure to check out the show notes and follow us on social media. Thanks a lot. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. 
Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Welcome back to the podcast, Eric Carter Landine. How are you today? Oh man, I'm doing great. It's so good to see you guys again. It's been a couple of weeks since we hung out, but uh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me back on the show. Anytime. You're uh, you're one of you're on the short list of uh, open door policy people. So um, very very short list. Very Don't be surprised when I show up in New England. Okay. <laughs> and yeah, you're you're welcome to show up in New England. Um, uh, before we get rolling on this. I can't tell if your microphone is has an extremely <laughs> big like like uh, baffle on it, or if yeah. uh, or if it's really close to the camera. So they're not sponsored by you know they're not sponsoring me, but this is a Chaotica eyeball. <laughs> Mind blown! What? Yeah, so it's a that's my SM7B here, and then I have the I'll take it off. Oh wow! Wow! Now that so, is some high tech shit. Yeah, <laughs> Snoop uses it for recording, so I thought if it's good enough for Snoop, it's good enough for me. Well, there you go. <laughs> he he probably was like, if it's good enough for Eric, it's good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to be a, a voice booth isolation uh, replacement. Wow! So it's supposed to muffle everything else except for my voice. It's really nice, and it Thank sounds you. great. It's kind of comically large, but I, I have to say, I definitely thought you were going to say it's a matter of perspective. Oh, the, the mic is right in front of the camera. <laughs> no, <laughs> you did that. And then like when that. you, yeah, when you put it up to you, I was like, what? That's, it was, I, that was shocking. It's mind F. Yeah. yeah, it's almost as big as my head. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds great. Wow. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, it was expensive, so it better. <laughs> Shit, I'm going to have to look into that, though. <laughs> wow. Well, we did hang out just a couple weeks ago at CrimeCon in Las Vegas, CrimeCon 2022. It was a smashing success, I would say. Uh, did you have a great time? Yeah, I had an awesome time. It was great to finally meet you. Uh, it was great to meet a lot of podcasters that I've talked to but haven't had the time to hang out with. And um, yeah, it was fun. It was great presenting as well, talking about the uh, the newlywed murders in Moab which there's an update on that now. So that's, that's exciting. Oh, we're going to get a, get a, get a exclusive here. Cause I was going to ask about that. You did a, um, a panel presentation, yeah. uh, with the cults, crimes and Cabernet ladies, mm-hmm. uh, looked like you had a pretty good crowd in there. And, um, you were talking about the, the newlywed murders. Yeah. Do you want to give us a little broad strokes of that one and what the update is? Yeah, sure. So, uh, this happened around the same time that Gabby Petito went missing and her family was looking for her. Uh, there were two women who were married, uh, recently living in Moab. They were similar to Gabby living a van lifestyle and they were camping around in, uh, nature around Moab. And they also had jobs in that community. They were very, uh, loved, very well respected in that community. Everybody knew them. They knew that, you know, these were people who were madly in love with each other. And it was in August of 2021, they had texted a friend saying that they were camping, but there was a weird guy 
that was kind of creeping them out. Uh, then they went to the bar with some friends on a Friday night, and that was the last time they were ever seen again. Uh, they were found murdered later that week in, uh, in a, at a campsite. And really, there were no real leads about who was responsible. At some point, people thought that maybe Gabby Petito, you know, that case was related. Maybe Brian Laundrie had something to do with it. Uh, that was quickly thrown out the door. And uh, just yesterday or two days ago, they announced that they did have uh, a suspect who they believe killed Crystal and Kylan. Uh, he had committed suicide. They found his car uh, in another state. They didn't say which state that was. They didn't say where he was found, but apparently he had confessed to somebody that he knew that he had killed uh, Kylan and, and Crystal. So, uh, you know, it's hopefully going to bring some peace to the family, even though you can't prosecute him because he's dead now. But it's definitely, I think it's good that they've they've identified who was responsible. Yeah, uh, fascinating case really and mm -hmm. was this the same person that they had said was the creepy person that was like freaking them out no and that's the weird ah. part is that uh this man actually worked with crystal at mcdonald's they worked different shifts but they had to have known each other somehow mm -hmm. even if it was just in passing so I, I don't think that they would have said there's a creepy guy you know if if they would have been known it was brad they probably would have said hey brad's freaking us out here at <laughs> you know somebody talked yeah. to him or something and how did it come to be that you were um doing the panel with Crimes, Cults, and Cabernet about this case? Uh, you know, we really wanted to collaborate on something at CrimeCon, and uh, this seemed like a really good opportunity to talk about this case because it did get a little bit buried in all the other headlines that were happening around the same time, and it felt like on some level there was just not a lot of interest in, you know, nationally in getting the case more exposure. So we wanted to, to give that exposure. We also wanted to highlight the fact that it was an LGBT couple that was murdered. I think that that's important to talk about. Absolutely. And Eric, the last time we had you on, we spoke about a case that's obviously very close to you, um, your brother Jacob's case. Can you tell us a little bit about that case and uh, where it is now? Sure, yeah. So my baby brother Jacob was murdered 35 years ago. It was a case of child abuse. We know who did it. It was, it was my stepfather, my, my mom's ex-boyfriend. It's actually how she asked me to refer to him, not as my stepfather, because she feels he doesn't deserve that title, and I'm inclined to agree with her. Um, so he, he murdered Jacob. This was a case of, like I said, child abuse and domestic violence. Uh, my mom was being abused. I was being abused, and it was... It was one of those things where you really have to struggle with it because you want to believe that the justice system is just and you want to believe that the people in authority are looking out for the best interest of the public. And in this case, he had too many friends in the county, too many friends in the police department. Uh, a lot of evidence is missing from the, from the case. So I've been fighting for... 35 years to to get justice for Jacob. And that's why I created the show, honestly. Um, initially, it was to help other family members that are dealing with the same kind of situation that my family's dealing with. But it turned into advocating for Jacob as well. And I do want to thank both of you for having me on the show. It, it has been uh, amazing to, to see the support I've gotten from the community with regards to Jacob's case. I started a campaign uh, last year in 
April leading up to the anniversary of Jacob's death called the 10 Days of Jacob, which was basically a campaign to get my listeners and everybody who cares about Jacob's case to call the district attorney in Socorro County in New Mexico to ask him to reopen the case. Uh, He lasted two days (laughs) before he gave up. And uh, so, you know, I... I take pride in that. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> you know, I feel like like that was the mark of a successful campaign of uh, phone ringing and emailing and on letter writing and all the things that people did. And within two days, he, he emailed the attorney general, Hector Balderas, and said, hey, this is too much for me. I can't handle this. I don't want to do this. You take this case. And this is the first time I publicly said this, so you guys are getting an exclusive on this. Another exclusive. <laughs> I knew this was going to be a good day. Uh, yeah, so the attorney general graciously took the case, said he was going to reopen it and reinvestigate it. Unfortunately, I took the path of quieting down and not talking about it as much because I wanted to give space for the investigators to do their job. And... It took me a year to get a hold of them again to find out that they really hadn't done a lot. So um, I'm going to talk about the case again, and hopefully this will put the pressure on them to to get their stuff together and get it in gear and, and get this case prosecuted. Um, we have an uphill battle ahead of us. I'm not going to lie. It's, it's not going to be easy. Uh, the hope we have, though, is that there's a potential that the confession might be out there somewhere. Great work. Great work, and I know that it sounds like, I don't know, it sounds disingenuous when you just say great work, Um, but you literally are doing really, really great work. Um, And even when you said that you quieted down to give some space and let the investigation play out, like that's still you being responsible about the whole thing and doing great work, even when you're not so actively engaged in it and then you see the result of that and you're like, well, okay, now I got to put the, you know, put the foot on the pedal again. So, um, way to, way to stick to it. Way to, way to keep going. And, um, yeah, uh, anytime, anytime you have any developments, uh, we're always looking for those, uh, those exclusives. So yeah, (laughs) give us a ring. So what is your plan to, uh, sort of start shaking that tree again? Well, it starts here, right? It starts talking about what has happened and what the developments are. I haven't shared that publicly. I think that that's important for people to know uh, for accountability purposes, you know, um, for pressure purposes. Unfortunately, it does require that. The The challenge I'm up against right now is that I'm going to have to start working with the new attorney general in January. And so I've already started building that relationship with the candidates, I'm going to actually interview the candidates for attorney general for New Mexico on my show and hopefully give, you know, voters information about who these people are. And uh, also with the goal of starting that relationship now and starting that conversation now and hopefully getting uh, the new administration to hit the ground running with Jacob's case. Well, that is a, that's a great step. Yeah. Are you going to ask the candidates if they're going to try Jacob's case on your show? Um, maybe. I don't know yet. I haven't decided. (laughs) Okay, cool. Just curious. Yeah. What kind of reception do you get when you reach out to the candidates and you introduce yourself, give them your backstory, and you say, I'd like to talk to you in an interview format and in that in that uh, fashion? What what kind of reception do they give you? It's been pretty positive, honestly. Um, I, I think the campaign managers know 
me and know my show and know my story. Um, so that was refreshing to hear when they said, oh, yeah, you know, we listen to your show and everybody likes your show. So that that's helpful. I think they know that there are a lot of New Mexico voters that listen to the show and that care about crime and that care about justice in New Mexico. And so it, I think it's advantageous for advantageous for me and for them. Absolutely. And the medium of podcasting, I feel like this point can't be driven home enough, but the medium of podcasting is so personal that uh, you connect with the people you listen to in, in ways that other mediums really doesn't give you that opportunity. Um, so it sounds like those campaign managers know that as well. I think it's a good way to meet an engaged audience and to, you know, and I don't really like being political on my show. It's not something that and I say that even though I'm talking about justice and crime and all these things that are pretty political, I, I, try, to, I try to focus on those political issues, I guess. But I never really wanted this to be like a political place, but it has kind of become that. And, and I think part of advocacy is poli- politics and playing the game and, you know, planning your moves ahead of time and all those things that you have to do to try to stay ahead of the game and make sure that people take you seriously. I'm surprised that politicians don't do it more often. I think we're going to start to see that where they embrace podcasts, especially the ones that are focused on their community, uh, their district. Um, You know, yours is, I mean, 99% New Mexico, right? I mean, have you covered anything that's not New Mexico? Yeah. Dylan Redwine is is Durango, which is New Mexico adjacent. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. I, I just, I'm surprised that... Um, maybe it is like campaign managers that are going to uh, come aboard a, a campaign. They're younger. They get like the medium. Uh, you can reach a certain amount of people with like local news and, and national news. But uh, to Tim's point about it being personal, if I hear a candidate on a podcast, I mean, that 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 is like that candidate's talking to me because they went to the effort to get on that podcast that is talking about what I'm interested in, not right. not the news that's just on that I'm right. just watching because it's on. Yeah, I think it's a good opportunity to to bring some issues to light and to somewhat hold these candidates' feet to the fire regarding what needs to change in New Mexico, and there's a lot that needs to change. So I'm excited. I think it's going to be a good opportunity. And so is are you going to speak with the current attorney general? Are they are they running again? No. He, he will be leaving... Uh, leaving the office. I don't know what he's going to be doing after that. And he, he know, he's... I, I heard he's going to start a podcast. <laughs> he might. Yeah. He might. It'll be called Fake Consequences. No. He's going to um, fake repercussions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I have to give him credit. He did He did step in and he did apologize to my mom and I. And he he apologized on behalf of the state of New Mexico. And, and that's more than we've ever gotten from anybody. So I'm grateful for that. Uh, I just want to see it through to the end. It's not enough for me to just get an I'm sorry. Like, we need to do more. We need to take this guy off the street, make sure that he's not hurting other kids. Well, great. Yeah, I think this is a a real position of power for you to be in to uh, get a chance to interview these folks and and create that relationship, no matter who the the actual eventual attorney general may be, or because maybe the... The one who loses is is the next one anyway, and you've got that relationship uh, underway, and, and it's been that way for years, you know? Yeah, I think it's really important for people who, who are into advocacy and into fighting for justice to, to see that, you know, that you can make a difference, that those calls, those emails, those tweets, all of those things add up. That pressure is what is often needed 
to get politicians to do what they need to do to do the right thing because if it's not popular for them to not do it then they won't <laughs> there was a lot of negatives in that sentence sorry <laughs> <laughs> bring the negatives we love it it's like a triple negative yeah. Well, okay, then it still becomes, so a double negative would become a positive? Yeah, so it's still okay. negative. <laughs> so it's still negative, yeah. And, okay, is, is there anything else um, that you want to talk about in regards to Jacob's case to, um, you know, as far as your plan or as far as um, any points you'd like to get out there? My plan is, is to keep fighting, so whatever that's going to take. If it means that we have to do another call campaign, another email campaign, if we have to do a new petition, you know, if I have to buy billboards all around town or all around the state of New Mexico, I'll do it. Um, you know, my, my only ask for people who are, who are listening and who are following the case is you know, to stay, stay tuned. You know, check out my social media. If you want to get involved, you can email me, eric at trueconsequences.com. Um, we're not giving up. We're just re-strategizing. True Consequences, you said, was started obviously because of your brother. Yeah. Uh, and you wanted to help others that were in a similar position, other families. How quickly did you discover the stories that you cover on your show? Did you have a backlog of these and, and then you started to produce episodes or did you did you seek them out? I guess I guess my long-winded question is in order to help other people, I'm sure you had to have gone through a lot of other stories that were similar uh in some level on in some way to your story. So, did you have all of those like did you seek those out and said, oh, "Okay, I can make a show out of this?" It actually kind of happened organically. So, I, what happened was I, you know, Jacob died and I went through my childhood my trauma and all that. And then I, like any good uh, current true crime listener, watcher, um, people that are into unsolved mysteries and weird stuff like that, you know, that, that became my escape from, from the horrors of real life. You know, I started looking into the horrors of other people's lives uh, and, and some of the made up ones too, because I thought those were fun and interesting. But, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in the library reading about all kinds of weird things. And um, and then I started to see cases like Jacob's coming through the court system in New Mexico as I got older. And children were being murdered by people who were supposed to be taking care of them, by people who were supposed to um, protect them. And a lot of these cases ended with not great sentences for for the people responsible. And I kept saying to myself that somebody needs to say something about what's happening in New Mexico. Uh, because every time this would happen, everybody would get up in arms and there would be protests and everyone's mad and they're yelling. And But then, you know, that would die down and then it would be a year or two and then it would happen again. And nothing really changed. So I waited for somebody to stand up and say something. And eventually I decided that I was going to say something. And so I thought I could create a podcast and I thought that it would be easy, <laughs> which it wasn't, but, uh, I'm glad I did it. I think that it's, it's been, it's been very fulfilling. Now with regards to the cases that I've covered, I am a serial planner. So I do have a really large spreadsheet with a ton of cases that I need to get to. Uh, and that keeps growing every day as people recommend cases to me, which is how I get a lot of 
cases. I have family members that will approach me and ask me to cover their family stories, but there were a lot of cases that I already had in mind before I started the show. And that's cases like Victoria Martins, like baby Brianna, um, like Omari Varela, Jeremiah, Jeremiah Valencia, Robbie Romero, all of these terrible, tragic child cases that yeah, I feel like their stories needed to be told. And some of them had some national coverage like Victoria Martins, but a lot of them have never been heard by other people. And I think that it goes along the same route of what I'm taking with Jacob's case. If I am loud about these cases, if these cases are in people's ears, it's going to make it unpopular for the legislators to continue allowing the laws to be what they are and hopefully will lead to change in the future. We'll see. So that was a long answer to your long question. I love it. I love it. Makes <laughs> makes editing a lot easier. <laughs> and we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. All right, Eric, tell us about your latest season of True Consequences. You've been covering the story of Dylan Redwine. Can you take us through this story and uh, and your coverage? Sure. So Dylan Nicholas Redwine was born on February 6th, I believe, 1999 in Denver, Colorado, to Mark and Elaine Redwine. Mark and Elaine had another son named Corey, and then Mark also had some children from a previous marriage. Uh, When Dylan was a young toddler, the family moved to the Bayfield-Durango area, which is in the four corners of the U.S., right up against New Mexico. And they started having some marital problems. They started to go through a separation process. And in that whole divorce proceeding, which is where I start the story, there's a custody battle. Elaine is asking the court for permission to move Dylan to Monument, which is near Colorado Springs, because she has family there, because her mother is gravely ill, and she doesn't have any support in Durango. She travels for work, and so she needs help with Dylan. Um, The court agrees, and Mark really feels spurned by this whole situation. He is granted partial custody, Part of that whole scenario in 2012 was that he was going to spend Thanksgiving with Dylan. So on November 18th, 2012, Dylan flies from Colorado Springs to Durango. He meets his father. He makes plans with his best friend to go see him early in the morning. He is trying to spend as much time with his friends as possible. He's told everybody around him that he does not want to be around his father. He has even told the court that. But like most situations like this, the court really doesn't put a lot of weight into what the kid is asking for, what the kid says, which I think is a problem. Um, And they force him to go with his dad. November 18th, 2012, 9.39 p.m. is the last time that Dylan has ever heard from again. And the entire time 
Mark Redwine, his father, who is supposed to be the person who cares about him, who if it was my child, I would be out looking for him. On the night of November 19th, he closes his door, turns off all his lights to his house and goes to sleep at about 10 o'clock. Meanwhile, search and rescue is looking everywhere for Dylan. It's in the middle of the forest. It's super dark. So with no lights on, there's no street lights. If Dylan really had run off, you would think that he would want his lights on to guide Dylan to his home. Uh, eventually, the investigation starts to really narrow in on Mark. And that's just one of the crazy things that he does and one of the weird behaviors that he has throughout the entire investigation. I wanted to cover this case because there's a lot of parallels between my story and Dylan's story. It's not exactly the same, but there is that domestic violence, there's that alcoholism, the drug abuse, and all those other things that are wrapped in in this story. And a lot of people who have covered this story, and this is not a slam on them, but they really focus a lot on these fetish pictures that Mark had that Dylan found. And it's part of the story, but it's not the whole story. For me, the whole story is who Dylan was, what happened to him, and what happened after he was killed. And so I asked for a, I submitted a FOIA request to the DA after the case had gone through trial, and I got so much information. So originally I planned on doing a four episode miniseries, but I got thousands of documents, <laughs> hundreds of hours of audio and video, and I messaged my writer and co-producer Jackie and I said, we're, we're screwed. Like, we're not going to be able to do this in four episodes. We're going to have to, we're going to have to commit a full season to this. And it ended up being 15 episodes and the series finale will be on Sunday. So we're wrapping it up, but it was, it was an intense journey, um, a learning experience for me. I probably would have done some things differently if I had the opportunity to do it again, but it was I feel like we did justice to the story and I feel like we didn't really leave much out. Yeah, you um I'm just scrolling through the episodes that you have on this. It's it's incredible. Um so the planning that goes into it on your end is impressive. This is a I don't know if it's a bad question or not, but um hopefully it doesn't come out the wrong way. Um when you cover something like this, do you think about your brother and you think if I'm doing something like this and giving justice to someone like this, uh Maybe maybe this in some way is, is paying uh, tribute to my brother? A hundred percent everything I do is with Jacob in mind. And what I think he would want me to do. Um, that's at the core of, of why I do what I do. It, it, it's such a huge part of it. I, when I did this case, I... I did think about Jacob, but I mostly thought about Dylan, and I mostly thought about doing justice to his story. Um, and it, w it was an honor to tell his story, and I hope I did it justice. You know, I, I hope that I didn't cause harm <laughs> to his family by, by covering the case. I, I really wanted to shine a light on, on these issues. You know, child custody battles can get ugly, and they can get really ugly to the extreme that you see in Dylan Redwine's case. And I think it's important for people to be aware of, of these situations and look for those signs. I, I don't have anything good to say about Mark Redwine or what he did. He is scum, in my opinion, and uh, deserves the 48-year sentence that he got. 
And that's what one of the things that happened recently. What, what are some of the red flags um, that that Mark showed? I guess you, you mentioned there there are some red flags in the trial. He just like a classic person who who commits these types of domestic violence and child abuse um, crimes. He you see him blaming everybody, and throughout the investigation, he's blaming everybody that he can for his failings for things that he's done things that he knows that he's done um, even so far as to blame his ex-wife for having something to do with dylan's disappearance which she was in colorado springs it's about six hours it's closer to, durango's closer to albuquerque than it is to colorado springs so just the insanity of him thinking that people don't see right through that like how is how is elaine what what advantage is it of her to make sure her son goes missing when he goes to visit his father. Like that doesn't make any sense at all. Um, he, when he failed the lie detector test, he said, they asked him, do you know where Dylan's remains are? And he said, that's a really hard question. And then he said, no. And he failed that question. And the, and the polygrapher's like, look, you failed this question. It's a simple question. He's like, well, I was confused by it. And he said, what, well, what's confusing you? Well, I, I suspect I know where he is. And that's why I failed it because I think I know. Well, then where did, where is he? Oh, Elaine, Elaine abducted him. Right. Threw her, threw her under the bus. Exactly. And then he didn't attend not one search, not one single search. He went to one candlelight vigil. That was it for four years. A lot of red flags. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, lot, yeah, one gigantic red flag. Yeah. Was there anything before Dylan went missing that you, that you could look to? Well, and we can talk about the fetish photos. You know, it, it is part of the story. It's not the whole story, but it's part of the story. So the year before this custody battle, Dylan and Corey, his older brother, are with Mark, and they're traveling around on a road trip. They're going to all of these major league baseball stadiums. Um, it's part of, you know, some bucket list that Mark had. Mark's taking a nap in one of the adjoining rooms. Uh, Dylan's playing video games on his dad's computer, and he stumbles upon some pictures of Mark wearing uh, diapers, uh, eating feces out of the diapers, wearing women's clothing, just a lot of fetishy photos that no 12-year-old should see ever. Like, it's way, way too much for a 12-year-old, let alone for that to be their father. I, I need to back this up a little bit. Yeah. There are photos of the father. Correct. Wearing diapers. Correct. Eating feces and wearing women's clothing and makeup. Wear what you want. That's what I say. Be, be you, however, but the consumption of feces. Coprophilia is a thing, apparently. Um, it's not a thing for me, but some people like it and... You know, whatever people do in their bedrooms and in their private life has nothing to do with me. I, I'm not here to judge him for that. The problem is when you have that available and accessible to your younger minor child who has no context into that world, who has no maturity to be able to process those images, uh, to say that it shook Dylan is probably an understatement. And from that moment on, there really became a rift in their relationship. 
And the defense tried to argue that it was no big deal. Mark tried to say that it was a joke that he set up so because he knew his kids were snooping on him. And so he wanted to, to get them. But I feel like that is bullshit. Like, why would you go that to that extreme to do that? <laughs> I mean, it, it, even if that's true, that's almost as as bad as the truth. I mean, it's even worse. Yeah, it's almost, even worse. Yeah. yeah. yeah why, why are you setting up your kid to see that? Right. Right. Knowing that there's no context for it, knowing that, you know, he's probably just starting to figure out things about sex at yeah. that age. So um, so that created a rift, obviously. And and like I said, the defense tried to minimize it. Mark tried to say that it was it was a joke. But what you see later in a following trip in the summer of the following year in 2012, where Dylan is alone with Mark. And Mark is spending the entire trip bad-mouthing Elaine and Corey, calling them drug addicts, calling them alcoholics, saying that they're bad influences on Dylan. And Dylan, the whole time, is texting Corey, begging him to send those pictures to him on his phone. And Corey says, why do you want the pictures so bad? And Dylan says, because Papa is talking about you and Mom, and I want to show him the kind of person that he is. So there's already this tension and Dylan's clearly not afraid to stand up to his father, clearly not afraid to call him out. And the theory that the defense came up with, and I believe is that, or that the prosecution came up with, and that I believe is that um, when Dylan got there on the 18th of November, he didn't want to be there. He told everybody he didn't want to be there. So he was being a normal teenager, probably talking a lot of shit to his dad and probably brought up the pictures, which sent Mark into a rage, uh, and he lost control. He may have even blacked out, you know, during that whole encounter. He had been proven already to be rageful when people confronted him about that. There was a woman who he, who was helping to find Dylan. She was a, a search and rescue person. Um, she unfortunately passed away from from cancer, but he was talking a lot of shit about her, and he said, "I hope." that you rot from the inside of cancer or something like that to her. And then her friend got mad and said, you're just a shit eater. And he came after them with a log, like he was going to hit these two women. So he's already proven that he gets violent when he's confronted with this fetish that he has. Accurate statements. Yeah. Yeah. What would you, um, if you ever get the chance, would you interview him in prison? No. I really don't have any interest in talking to that man. I've listened yeah. to him more than I ever want to, more than anybody should, honestly, um, to the point where, and my producer, co-producer Jackie, she got it even worse. I mean, she listened to hundreds of hours of this man talking. <laughs> so we're, we're sick of Mark Redwine, honestly. I, I've had my fill. He's got a really, uh, he's got a face that if you were to see, you would like you'd cross the street. I feel like I would be like, that guy's just up to no good. Like, and his voice is so whiny. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> God. <laughs> Even when he like cleaned up in court, like he still looks like a like a scumbag. <sighs> so that's that's a tragic case of Dylan Redwine. It's it's awful. Wow. Well, uh, well, that's a heavy one to uh, to get into, and uh, I commend you for doing that kind of work um, and covering it so closely. And I saw that you had Bob Mata from the Defense Diaries on. Um, he's, uh, an upcoming guest on crawl space as well. That was, uh, fun to hear another familiar voice. 
yeah, he's he did a good job. We really dove into the trial and to the strategies of the defense and the prosecution. And it was great to get that perspective. As a layperson who does not have trial experience, Bob brought a lot of information to the table. He also has family law uh, experience and family court experience. So we talked about the the beginning where the, the trial uh, for custody was happening. All of that was just amazing. And I'm so glad he agreed to be on the show. No, he was... Uh... A really good guest to have on when we were speaking with him. He's uh, very articulate and talks in the way a lawyer should talk, but it makes sense. And and you know what I'm saying? Like he he's very thorough about um, the points that he's making, and he doesn't do it in a uh, in any sort of patronizing way. He does it in a very informative way. Like he yeah. wants you to learn these things. Yeah, he definitely brings that casual conversation style that he has to it which makes it more easy to digest i think some of these legal terms and things that people talk about he he really does take the time to explain it and and i appreciate that for sure tell us a little bit about your billy the kid coverage i was just gonna ask that look i doodled him (laughs) i'll I'll, I'll show you later (laughs) yeah i so sometimes i was telling you all before we started recording i like to throw in some things that I find interesting about New Mexico that may be aren't as intense as a Dylan Redwine story or some of these other really tragic cases. I think with old timey stories, it's easy to distance yourself from them and really look at them a little more objectively than some of these more current cases. So I wanted to talk about Billy the Kid. It's it's hard not to talk about Billy the Kid in New Mexico because he was all over the state causing trouble and, and wreaking havoc. Um, you know, we have Billy the Kid museums and we have his grave here and there's just so much connection between his story, uh, the start of this state and, you know, what it was. There was a lot of corruption back then, just like now. <laughs> um, and you know, everybody was trying to get as much out of the resources that the state had as they could at the time. And, and Billy the Kid was not the only person taking advantage of that kind of lawless nature of what was happening here. And he got away with quite a bit of, of crime and, and robbery. I think a lot of his story is very mythicized and, and made larger than life. I think the real story is a little less sexy. Uh, but it's still interesting and it's still fascinating. I, I definitely gave the less sexy version of the Billy the Kid story. So, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the research and and I had a good time. I had my friend Lydia on and and we talked about it together. So, well, speaking of less sexy, um, my first question about Billy the Kid is: In your research, did you find him to be similar to Emilio Estevez? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> okay. No, no. It, it's actually when you see a picture of Billy the Kid, and then you're, you wonder like who the casting director was for Young Guns because it's not even it's not even close. Yeah, I mean, the guy's not a good-looking guy. He's not. He's, he's kind of got like a droopy face, and he just he looks kind of like a. Uh, God, I'm gonna get a lot of hate for this. He looks kind of just like a standard hick, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, you. You can totally, yeah, you can totally say that. I mean, anyone who looks at this picture uh, will probably feel the same way. He he looks like someone on like like I went to school with who was just sort of like a jerk. 
you know, just like someone who picked on people and just because like he was probably smaller than than everyone. And so he that was his defense yeah. mechanism and he just turned into a jerk. He just has that sort of smarmy face. He did have a hard childhood. And I think that that was part of what happened was, you know, his mom died at a very young age and he was kind of left on his own in Silver City, New Mexico at like 13 or 12 or something like that. So he had to figure out how to survive in the Wild West. And he just started joining gangs. And most people don't know that he later went on to become the attorney general of New Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> if he were running in today, a landslide would you have victory. <laughs> yeah. No, just kidding. Billy the Kid for AG. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, so everyone thinks that Billy the Kid's real name is William Bonney, but that's not the case. No. Give us another Sclusi. His real name is Lance Reinstierna. Lance. <laughs> Senior. Uh, yeah, I, I don't even remember his real name. Henry McCarty. Long. Henry McCarty, yes. William Bonney was the name. He was actually named after uh, his stepdad. Uh, he took that name, William. And then Bonnie, I don't know where that came I think probably something else i don't know but um he was instrumental in fighting in the lincoln county war which was a crazy war and i talk about that a lot um yeah william bonnie i think he was born in new york yeah new york city well you mentioned that he had his he had to he joined gangs he he had his uh his hand in the development of the state of new mexico uh, with like with with all of the corruption yeah well he was fighting the so there was a, a group of um politicians they were called the house and um they were trying to kind of put their people in place in power in new mexico because it was a territory um and so they really had free reign over what they did they controlled what goods were brought into New Mexico, what goods left New Mexico, they controlled who got those supplies. So there was a lot of, uh, like I said, a lot of corruption. The house was basically like the mob. You know, they were just rich guys that were taking advantage of everybody. And Billy was fighting against those people in a lot of ways. Um, you know, he wasn't quite as noble as that sounds. He was really out for Billy, but he was a thorn in their side. And I think that that I respect that. I applaud that, you know, fighting against the man, fighting against the, the oppressors. I think that's a, a good story. Um, but he was kind of a dick, too. And he killed a bunch of people for no reason. So, <laughs> OK. And you said he's, his grave is there. Um, what's your feelings? Did he die there? Did he live uh, to be, you know, 90 years old uh, in some remote village in, uh, you know, New Hampshire or something? Uh, well, Lance, I don't know. You tell me. Uh, <laughs> I, I think he died. I do. I think I think he died. Uh, I think William Garrett killed him, and and he's buried in New Mexico. I know there's a lot of rumors, but you know there's rumors that Elvis is alive, that Tupac is alive. I don't see Billy Kidd as any different from that. Are you saying Elvis and Tupac aren't alive? I don't. I don't get it. They're hanging out with Billy. <laughs> Billy aged well in Lincoln, New Mexico. Yeah. I think there's a new TV series about him now, Billy the Kid. I think it's called Billy the Kid. I think Epics made it. Oh, cool. I, I'd be curious to see if it's accurate or not. Well, Eric, I feel like last time we had you on, you know, you, you cover so, so much about New Mexico, and we didn't ask you at all about Roswell or aliens or UAPs. 
give us your thoughts on that. I, I've noticed that you you covered um, Roswell to some degree on your other podcast. Um, yeah, tell us your feelings. So I started Dos Pequeños with my friend Alex. Um, we originally started it to just be about the paranormal in New Mexico because, like I said, I spent my childhood escaping from my trauma, <laughs> looking into weird stuff. Uh, and, you know, it's a bummer. The show, I, I, it's fun. We have a good time. It's kind of a comedy show. It's lighthearted. But the second you start to dig just a little bit below the surface on some of this stuff, it becomes very apparent that it's all just bullshit. And so <laughs> I want to be a believer. I want to believe in, you know, all of these things. But when I looked at Roswell and what happened there, you know, we're talking about balsa wood, uh, flower scotch tape, and some paper. That's what they found. That's what the farmer found in his field that caused all of this chaos. Um, now, could that be like a cover-up? This is what they want you to think they found? Maybe. But anybody who had any stories to the contrary was quickly disproven. Uh, and so I I don't know that Roswell's is what it is. I'm going to probably get like sued by the tourism board here in New Mexico or something. But <laughs> I don't think it's as big of a deal as, as we thought. There were other sightings in New Mexico that, that could have been maybe more... Uh, real. There was one in my hometown in Socorro. A sheriff's deputy saw something that allegedly crashed in the field. Um, that ruined his life. Nobody respected him after that. His family won't talk about it. I tried to get them on the show. Nobody wants to talk about it. It's kind of one of those things that everybody's freaked out about. I kind of am leaning more towards believing that one than the Roswell one. What happened yeah. with that? Tell, tell so, us about that. That's interesting. Yeah. So there was a sheriff's deputy that was driving in a rural area um, outside of my hometown of Socorro, New Mexico. And he saw a light fly overhead and he followed it. It crashed in the desert. It was, according to him, a, a disc-shaped craft. This was in the 50s or 60s. And his reputation was ruined because of it. it you know, he's, people didn't want to talk to him. They kind of out he was an outcast in in my town his family will not talk about it it's but it's well documented it might have even been on unsolved mysteries at one point if i remember correctly um there's a lot of weird stuff we have uh skinwalkers have you heard of those yes yes yeah <laughs> uh that's one of the scariest things i've ever talked about in my entire life and i'm still freaked out about it and i can't believe we did an episode about it um, it's a tradition in the Diné uh, religion, Native, Native American Navajo religion. Um, they believe that there are people who can take the carcass of an animal and it can become, they can become that. So they are like a supernatural, um, super fast. They can run as fast as your car on the freeway. And their only intention is malice. They only want to cause harm. They only want to... Um, hurt you, steal things from you, kill you. It's pretty terrifying. Um, and they supposedly smell like rotting meat. And they have their own ranch. Sounds fun. That's Yeah, so that's in Utah, right? The Skinwalker Ranch? Right, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, but that's all connected in the whole Diné culture. And, and wow. honestly, you're not supposed to talk about it. Oh, if you're if you're shit. in that culture, you're definitely kicked out of New Mexico for all this. 
you're, <laughs> you, you don't believe in Roswell. You're all about the skinwalkers from Utah. Jeez. Well, they're in New is, Mexico too. This is a mess. <laughs> if you could, uh, if you could put the carcass of a dead animal on you <laughs> to transform, to transform, what animal would you choose? Hmm. Probably a bear. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think I'm with you on that. I yeah. think I, I would do a bear as well. I mean, it's not a lot of uh, not a lot of um, uh, pushback you'd get from other creatures if you're walking around <laughs> as a bear. Yeah, that's true. Bear. Yeah. What do you want? <laughs> yeah. But but would you like if you chose a bird? Would you get to fly? Yeah. Oh well, then I feel like I'm choosing a a bald eagle or something. We do have bald eagles here, so that could okay. work. Okay. I'll take that. But with that head of hair, Tim? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really an incorrect nickname for the e- for the bald eagle. They, they, you should be a peacock. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of peacocks, you're the one with a blue head of hair. That would be go. a parrot or a kitzel. <laughs> this has been an insanely wide-ranging conversation. It's all over the place, which is yeah, how I my feel, mind works. So I, I feel like I need to ask you um, what you prefer, mezcal or tequila? Because I don't get the op- the opportunity to ask somebody from New Mexico this. Yeah, I love tequila. Um, mezcal, it's okay. It's too smoky for me. Mm. Yeah, I prefer a good silver tequila. All right. Good, good, good. I, I still can't get over that moment where you showed us the microphone. I'm, I'm looking at it now. I wish, I hope people go to YouTube and they watch this and they, they see like <laughs> the, the optical illusion that it's not. It's not. It's absurd. This is, this is absurd. This is what my life has become. <laughs> oh, <laughs> there you oh, go. God. <laughs> That's my new Facebook profile picture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So what do you have coming up as far as uh, cases or maybe uh, maybe the next fun Billy the Kid type episode? Yeah, so I'm going to do uh, The Women of Wattis. I'm going to talk about uh, the hundreds and hundreds of women who have been murdered and disappeared in Wattis, Mexico, which is right on the border, very close to where I am. Um, I'm also going to do more family interviews, families that are seeking justice. I've got a few of those coming up. I'm going to talk about the Taos Revolt, which is... A bit of history on New Mexico, um, somewhat of a massacre that happened between uh, an indigenous tribe people and the U.S. government at the time. Uh, just lots of all over the place, kind of like this conversation. <laughs> Great. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks a lot for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you inviting me on. Keep fighting the good fight. And you have a bit of a virtual event coming up in June. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it was supposed to be May 4th, but uh, COVID got me. So I rescheduled it for June 3rd. It's going to be a virtual event. And I'm going to be joined by my co-producer on the Dylan Redwine series, Jackie Moranti from Cause of Death. We're going to talk about the epidemiology of crime. We're going to give a little bit of a behind-the-scenes conversation into the Dylan Redwine story and its production. And then we'll do some Q&A. So it should be fun. Uh, you can find out information on my website or on my social media. Uh, or you can go to Eventbrite to buy a ticket. 